All right, podcast family, I'm going to try to get through this episode because the topic is actually really cool. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not, because we usually put our attention when this particular issue happens in in the gynecology aspect of stuff, not really the potential obstetrical stuff that could happen after. Okay, so let me set this up. And when I said I'm going to try to get through this, (laughs) I mean, I'm going to try to get through this without massive coughing spells because, yes, I'm still sick. Thank you very much. Uh, But one of my residents finally put me on a Medrol dose pack. It's like, Chapa, I can't listen to you anymore. My goodness, you've totally got reactive airway. And doing checkout with you is like super painful because you are coughing up a lung. So. While I'm not all about taking steroids for anything, I'm at my wit's end, and I know I'm not infectious, and it's not pneumonia, so I gave in, and I'm on the roids, all right? So, yep, I'm on Medrol Dose Pack. (laughs) I'm on my day and a half, and I'm not sure if it's working. I think it's working, because so far I haven't coughed yet, but I know it's going to happen in this episode. So just bear with me. I'm trying, all right? So if you're thinking, why not just wait to do the episode until when the cough is over? I'm not doing that because I got stuff to say, number one. And two, this darn cough could last another week. And no, we got a job to do. So I'm still going to the office, (laughs) stepping out of the rooms, coughing up an alveoli, and then I go back in and I finish my task. I'm going to make it work, guys. All right. Don't worry. I'm not infectious. Nothing's going to happen through the airways. And my swabs are continually negative. All right. Oh my goodness, I've already lost track of... Oh, so the topic. Here's what we're going to talk about. Listen, super cool. So I received a message today and I'm like, this is a great topic. We've got to talk about it because it's happened to me. And if it hasn't happened to you, that's fantastic. I've got two things to say to you. If it hasn't happened to you yet then you it may have happened and you were unaware. Or number two, you simply have not done enough of these things. What am I talking about? I'm talking about perforation of the uterus at time of IUD placement. Okay? Now, it happens to everyone. It's okay. It, it doesn't mean that you're a bad physician, a bad nurse practitioner, a bad CNM. I mean, it's happened to me. I remember once I had a, it was like a 20-year-old nullographic patient, right? Super easy breezy. And I love popping in IUDs all the time, or IUDs or IUSs. Um, I just think it's kind of fun. And, and we get to, it's very uh, satisfying when it goes well, right? We did our informed consent. Uh, and our typical protocol, which we've got a podcast episode on, is we bathe the cervix and the device and the sound. We bathe everything in uh, high concentration lidocaine jelly. Patients love it. It really decreases pain sensation with um, with insertion. It's the way to go. And you can listen to that previous episode. It was something like TikTok is killing the IUD or something like that. Because for a while, things were circulating on TikTok that getting an IUD was like so awful. And I mean, don't get me wrong. It can be. But it's mainly driven by technique, all right? And so we had done this uh, lidocaine protocol for over 15 years, and we have an episode on that. Anyway, so we're getting ready. I'm getting ready to sound. It's all goopy with her lidocaine jelly. And I sound, and this nullagravid patient, and I'm like, uh, um, well, I know her uterus can't be like 14 centimeters. <laughs> I was like, oops. Uh, and I pulled it out, and I'm like, well, I, I think I... I think I perfed um, because your exam on by manual is clearly not 14 centimeters. Okay. So all to say she was fine. We you know let it heal. We did it again uh, a week later, even though, and we'll discuss that in a minute, whether you should 
do it immediately uh, or just give it time to heal. Now, this was a clinical diagnosis of presumed perf. We brought her back. We did it under ultrasound guidance. She was happy. Everything was fine. Okay. All to say, uh, and I'm not a novice, I've done plenty of intrauterine device placements, uh, but it happens. Uh, if you do enough of them, it's going to happen. So here's a clinical question. You know, we always worry about the immediate gynecology thing, right? Infection, you know, is it going to cause bleeding? You know, do I need to do a laparoscopy? And the, of course, the majority of these patients are absolutely fine because the fundus will bleed. Um, but because of that musculature, it, it stops and typically patients don't need anything. Okay. Now, this is talking about perforation, either with the sound or the IUD itself. And in my case that I just told you, it was with, with the, the metal sound, all right? Still obviously can happen uh, with the plastic sound, although it's more likely with a metal rigid sound, okay, with the malleable. So it happened. <laughs> She did fine, and it's a reality of it. But while we mostly focus on the gynecological immediate aspects, I had a podcast family member who sent me a message who said, um, you know, I get that, that it happens, it's fine, but is there any data on the follow-up pregnancies in this patient? It's a fantastic question. The answer is absolutely, but it's more complicated than just saying, yes, there's data, because yes, there's data, and yet there isn't. And I'm going to explain it in this episode. And what we really worry about is two main categories, right? With this perforation, are we putting patients at risk of potentially morbidly adhering to placenta? Is that a thing? And of course, the bigger fear is, is it somehow going to weaken the uterus and potentially cause a uterine rupture? Now, before you think, ah, oh, well, that's not a thing, hold on. If you take a look at some of the literature, the literature kind of reads kind of scary if you read the headline, okay? If you read an abstract. But as you dive into it, it's much more reassuring. So we've got lots to cover. It's a fascinating topic about uterine perforation and pregnancy outcomes after that. And, and we're going to talk about it in this episode. Our focus, of course, is perforation at time of IUD placement. And that's, that, that's the big disclosure here. Because if somebody ever asks you, what's the data following uterine perforation and future obstetrical outcomes, your first answer should be, um, well, what perforated the uterus? I mean, was it like a big operative hysteroscope? Was it a receptoscope? <laughs> was it a sound? Was it the IUD? So you got to figure out what you're talking about. So in this very narrow little topic here of perforation with the IUD placement, that's where we're going to go, all right? The data is, 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 is super interesting, and it's at the end, I've got some good news. Okay, so lots to cover. And if you don't think this is like really in the literature, actually, it, it, it is because something was published in July of 2022 uh, that I'm going to tell you about. And there's been some weird stuff that's been published that I'll get into as well. So cool stuff. I appreciate the message, the, the question. It, it triggered this uh, episode. And oh, there it goes again. There's that reactive airway. My goodness, I'm so tired of this. I mean, yikes. I, I feel I can what, what I would imagine a patient with COPD probably feels like. Like, I can't get the air out. It's just kind of stuck in there, and it's, it's difficult. Guys, I'm trying, but thank goodness for the roids. All right, let's get to our message. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uterine perforation at time of IUD typically happens one of two ways, either with the sound or with the IUD applicator itself. While typically, though, between the two, if you had to pick one, it's typically going to happen during the sounding procedure. So good technique, super vital. Of course, never force it. Always straighten out the cervix unless the uterus is just completely mid-position and an easy breezy, right? Because like in my case, if it's a primogravita, typically her uterine cavity is not going to be like 12 to 14. But it happens. So just recognize it. Stop. Uh, and the most conservative thing to do, and there's no real guideline for this, is to just let it rest, let the uterus heal, uh, and then and then come back later. It's selective. It's all right. And then try again. Now, there are some who immediately try uh, after a perf under ultrasound guidance. No problem with that. The problem uh, potentially lies not with the placement but with the issue of, of, of increased risk of infection. And it's not clear if with the uterine perforation and the device in place, if that increases risk. Again, so if you have a perf and you're like, I'm not leaving you without this IUD placed right now and I'm going to do it under ultrasound, totally fine. There's no real set guideline in, in my personal perspective and in my practice. If we suspect a perf, we stop. That's a that's a no more. We just let it leave it alone because it's elective. It's birth control. It's going to be all right. And then we bring it back about a week later uh, and do it under ultrasound guidance. Right? We have our own uh, in-house sonography, of course, uh, and it's done under ultra transabdominal ultrasound. So uh, it's just the the safest way to go, even though there's no real guideline. But uterine perforation has been reported at time of IUD placement anywhere about one to two per thousand. So you need to tell your patient that. Um, at time of informed consent. So it's not a lot. Right? We're talking about like 0.1 to 0.2, but it does happen. So one to two per thousand. Of course, there are a lot of factors that influence the chance of perf technique being number one. Second is where the patient is in terms of her postpartum state, whether she's lactating, for example. The position of the uterus also matters if it's very anti-flex, very retroflex. All of those things are factors. And if the patient has some high-risk factors, like very anti-flex or very retroflexed, or is is a very recently postpartum and lactating because of the effect of, of oxytocin on the uterus and, and that extra contraction, consider placing it under IUD transabdominal guidance. I mean, that's a billable thing, so you're not wasting resources, and it's safer for the patient, okay? Remember that there was something published in January of 2022, so just two years ago in the Gray Journal, the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, The title was Complications After Interval Postpartum Interuterine Device Insertion. So this was out of Kaiser Permanente, okay? So they did a retrospective review from 2010 to 2016 looking at the rates of IUD PERFs uh, based on postpartum state. They also looked at expulsions, but we're focusing on PERFs, all right? So they had two big time frames, four to eight weeks postpartum, and then 9 to 36 weeks postpartum. So super recent postpartum, and then after the first six weeks or so, all right? 
And their, their, their main focus was who's going to get a higher rate of PERF. It's a good study. Now, this has nothing to do with with immediate postpartum IUD placement, uh, which, you know, ACOG says you can do. You just got to worry. It's got a little bit a higher risk of expulsion, but it's legit. If you're at a hospital that that's allowed and they somehow stock it and, and it's going to be covered, great, right? Uh, it is a thing, immediate postpartum LARCs, but, uh, but this is not talking about that. This is looking at uh, whether it was four to eight weeks or nine to 36 weeks for IUD placement, all right? So here's what they found. They found that the rate of uterine perforation was higher in the four to eight week interval versus the nine to 36 weeks, right? So the rates were 0.78% compared to 0.46%, okay? So almost a double when it was done at four to eight weeks. Now, remember, we're still talking about 0.78. So even though it happened much more likely in the four to eight week group, it's still not a very high number, right? But it was statistically significant. The p-value was 0.001. So the author stated, quote, after controlling for race, ethnicity, breastfeeding, IUD type, provider type, I don't know what that's about, but provider type, parity, most recent delivery, and body mass index, the odds of perforation remained higher with placement at four to eight weeks than at nine to 36 weeks. And the adjusted odds ratio was 1.92. And the confidence interval, the 95% confidence interval was legit. It was 1.28 up to 2.89. So they said, look, not don't do it at four to eight, just be careful at four to eight. And that's that's the take-home message here, guys. We're going to be talking about perforation at time of IUD placement, and is there any subsequent OB issues? It's a good question, right? And, we, and patients need to know that. And we should be able to disclose that if this happens. Like I said at the beginning, we always talk about, we always worry about the gynecological issues, infection, bleeding, um, you know, uterine sneaky and those are good things to to, to worry about, but nobody really gives any love to the OB stuff. Like, hey, I wonder what the OB outcomes are after this. We're going to answer that in this episode. So OB issues after IUD perf, well, that's what we're talking about. That's why we're having this fantastic question from our podcast family member that came in today. So all to say that even though perforation rates are low, um, it, it's it's still higher in the four to six week group. So the big take home was just be aware of it. It's not don't do it at that time. Just use best practice. Consider maybe getting it under ultrasound if that's a thing. But just understand that overall rates of uterine perf are low. Uh, but And women can still safely be offered IUDs at any interval. Uh, beyond four weeks, it's 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 definitely can happen. So this will be very clear. the The purpose of this is not to dissuade anybody from doing it at four to eight weeks because we're still talking about zero point seven eight. But no question, you're going to get statistically higher rate of perf early on four to eight weeks compared to nine to thirty six. Right. The bigger issue now. Let's be real, guys is pushing the IUD further down is you're leaving her unexposed, man. Um, wait, unexposed. Sorry, you're leaving her exposed. You're leaving her unprotected um, from a future pregnancy. So nothing is free, all right? I, in my personal opinion, I find this super interesting, but this in no way dissuades me. So if somebody comes in at four weeks and they want an IUD, absolutely do it. It's just part of the informed consent. 
Okay, especially if they're breastfeeding. And I do think it's a good idea to do this under ultrasound, especially in that four to eight week group. So as the authors concluded in this Kaiser study in the Gray Journal from January 2022, quote, because overall rates of uterine perforation are low, women can safely be offered IUDs at any interval beyond four weeks with minimal concern for perf, end quote. Now, that's after they say, yeah, there's a higher rate of perf between four to eight weeks and that nine to 36 weeks. <laughs> but it's still super low at less than 1%, all right? That's why it's important to take numbers in perspective, right? So if you say, oh, there's an odds ratio, it's, it's, almost, uh, you know, it's almost a three odds ratio that you're going to perf. The odds ratio in this paper was up to 2.89. Ooh, oh, that's, that's a lot, almost three times. Well, what's the absolute number? The absolute number was 0.78. Bro, you're killing me. I mean, does that make sense? So yes, odds ratio is big. Acknowledge that. But that's why you have to put it in the context of the absolute number. Okay? So again, this was in the Gray Journal. Not to dissuade anybody from not doing it at four weeks. Please, I'd rather risk the perf than risk her having a short interval pregnancy. Just interesting to note. The point is, perforations happen, guys, right? They happen. So be aware of this. This is why we're going through this data. Now, there's also some really weird stuff that has been published. And I'm going to get into that, okay? Because if you just read these independently without looking at the big picture, if you just look at one puzzle piece, you're like, ooh, that puzzle piece looks pretty bad. But then if you look at the whole picture, you're like, ah, it's not that bad. But there's some whack stuff that's happened and we have to be aware of, all right? So, so we're going to put it in perspective. But before I do that, in my typical style of going through some history, I find this interesting, so IUDs were first introduced as contraception legitimately, like in the literature, because people have been sticking things up there for a long time before literature. But it was first recorded as uh, a, a intrauterine method to prevent untimed pregnancy by Richer. Okay, this was a German a manuscript, 1909. How about that? The journal was Deutsch Med Wurschner. Yeah, I know I didn't say that right because I don't speak German. And I don't even know what that says because it's in German. But it was in 1909 where it was first introduced as placing this little sterile a foreign body into the uterus to make a, a sterile inflammatory response. How cool is that? And of course, you just have to go from an introduction of an idea to get some complications because in 1930 that's where perforations of the uterus with iud's was were first described uh and one of those was in the lancet 1933 uh and the title was migration of the grafenberg ring right that was a style of an iud grafenberg by the way was another one of the big leaders here in intrauterine contraception because he had published his own work in 1929 Okay, so all the way back in the 1930s in the Lancet, people were, were, were having to struggle with perforations. Listen to this because this is worth my deviation from the topic here uh, just as a learning point. All right. When these early perfs were first described, guys, 
because it surely can be the provider's fault, right? I mean, that's, I mean, my goodness, that's heresy. It, it surely can be my placement technique. Something must be wrong with the uterus. That was exactly the, the descriptions and the theory of how the IUD happened to, to walk its way outside of the uterine cavity into the abdomen, okay? So, yep, there, there was first these thoughts that forceful, quote, I'm reading it right here, forceful uterine contractions could lead the device through the muscular wall, end quote. Um, uh, what? N- no, n- likely no. Uh, these were perforations at placement, either partial and that fully then with the uterine uh, expelling it into the abdomen, or there were complete uh, perfs at time of placement. Remember, we're talking at the time, guys, where ultrasound was like n- n- not a thing, right? But yeah, there, there, there was this thought that Potentially, it was this migration uh, of the of the of the IUD out because the uterus forced it out. Good try, but likely no. I'm not trying to make light of perforations at all. They definitely happen. I fished out IUDs uh, laparoscopically in my all my 23 years of practice. It happens, all right. And yes, you you need to get it out of the pelvis. You can't leave it just in the pelvis because especially if it's a copper T, that's very prone to uh, adhesion formation. Potentially some some uh, bowel loops can get trapped in there. Now the inert uh, Morena family um, has been questioned like, oh, I'll just leave that in there. Why would you leave that floating around the abdomen? It's a foreign body. Best practice is to, if you see it in the abdomen, you got to get that joker out, okay? I get that the, the moraine is more inert than the copper tea, but you still have a foreign body in the abdomen that needs to come out. Okay, fine. I think I've made the point here that perforations happen. Okay, that's, that's what I was trying to get at. And it's happened since the 1930s that, where people started to figure this out. But again, overall, the number is one to two per thousand. Very small, but they are out there. Okay. Now, when I said that weird stuff is out there, uh, let me just read this to you, this little uh, case report that was published in 2009 in the Gray Journal, okay, American Journal of OBGYN. This was in July of 2009, a case report, and the title is Ectopic Pregnancy in a Uterine Perforation Site. Now, this is why I said at the beginning that you've got to read the entire data. You've got to do a real literature uh, evaluation, not just abstract. Because if you read this title, you're like, oh my gosh, there was, a, there was a perforation and there was an ectopic pregnancy that formed in it. Oh my gosh, is that going to happen with my IUD perf? You got to put it into perspective. You got to read the entire thing. So I'm just going to read this case report because once again, wow, and super rare. And no, it was not with an IUD perf. That's why you've got to separate the data between what well, uterine perf with what? What happened? Was it with a big suction DNC? Was it with a big resectoscope? I mean, what perfed it here? What are we talking about? Was it perf with the Novisher device? I mean, so uterine perf, there's stuff in the literature, but uterine perf related to IUD is very niche, right? And the reason it's very niche is, let's be real, it's, it's, it's quite small, um, it's no energy, uh, and it's not going to cause any real muscle, uh, potential long-term muscle damage because m- muscle fibers just seal around it, okay? That's why most perfs, women don't even know, they're a little asymptomatic, maybe have a little bit of discomfort, a little cramping as the uterus cramps down to stop the bleeding, but they do all right, okay? Uh, and we'll get into that in a minute about management because typically you, you should not buzz that. Don't buzz the, the little uh, perforation tip. At, like at laparoscopy, if you're putting in a Hoka clamp and burp, you see that Hoka device go right through the fundus like a big antenna i've done it guys it's all right i I have done it uh just take it out and do not 
buzz it. Leave it alone. Like it's bleeding. It will stop. If it really wigs you out, put a stitch in it laparoscopically or inject a little bit of patrecin in it, vasopressin. It will stop. There's a potentially a danger of buzzing it that weakens the muscle more. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. Okay. Oof. My voice almost went there. You hear that? Um, so just leave it alone. But let me read you this case report. And you're like, wow. And again, why it's important to read the actual document, not just the title. Because the last thing you want to do is say, oh, oh my gosh, did you just get a, a, an IUD perf? <gasps> I hope you don't get a subsequent, I hope that patient doesn't get a subsequent ectopic pregnancy there. Relax. That's not been reported with IUD perfs. It's been reported with other perfs. Let me read you this case report. Oh, my goodness. My voice has kind of did weird stuff there. I'm so sorry. <clears throat> Must be the roids. Okay, so let me read you this report. Check this out. Quote, a 23-year-old Gravita 2 Para 1 presented with vaginal bleeding and right-sided pain at six and a half weeks gestation. Everybody good? Everybody got it? Six weeks, G2P1, lower abdominal pain. Fine, and bleeding. Now, keep, they keep going. Quote, she delivered vaginally four months prior to presentation and underwent evacuation of retained placental tissue two months postpartum. So everybody got that in perspective. She is four months postpartum, but listen, remember, do the math, right? Four months postpartum, but two months after she delivered, she underwent a DNC for retained products, okay? And now she's six weeks. All to say she got v- pregnant super fast after that DNC, Got it? Four months postpartum, but two months after that, she had the DNC, and now she's six and a half weeks. I mean, hello, it was right after that DNC, okay? Uh, which is why vital it's vital that patients who are not interested in pregnancy right away get contraception, because this woman got pregnant relatively quickly postpartum, super short in a pregnancy interval, right? So let's continue here with the case. They go on to say, quote, dilation was complicated by a uterine perforation. So this perforation was not with an IUD. It was at time of the DNC. Now, it's unclear if there was a perforation with a sound. Was it a perforation with uh, a banjo curette? Was it with the suction uh, um, curette itself? Uh, so it, it's, it's not clear how the perforation was done, but it was definitely a time of DNC. And of course, she got pregnant very soon thereafter. So here's what happened. Remember, she presented with uh, vaginal bleeding and right-sided pain. So they did an ultrasound, and they're like, hey, we see a a little uh, possible gestational sac, but it's not real clear. But then she continued to have pain, and when they did a repeat sauna, they're like, oh, there's there's kind of something in, in the fundal area. Well, here it is. Quote, exploratory laparotomy retrieved 1,500 mLs of fresh blood and clot. A 7-millimeter bleeding uterine wall defect was noted fundally, two centimeters from the right fallopian tube. Sharp curettage was then performed through the defect, and products of conception were evacuated. Wow. Okay, hold on. Listen to this. The edges of the defect were excised, and the myometrum and the serosa approximated in two layers. They sent that tissue off to pathology. And the pathology of that excised uh, wall of that defect showed degenerating chorionic villi with decidualized cells. All that, if you continue to read the comment, it states, well, this was an ectopic pregnancy. That pregnancy got lodged because it was so recent from that perforation that, yeah, the gestational sac and the chorionic tissue lodged within the perforation site. 
So when I told you that there's weird stuff out there, this is a uterine perforation, not with an IUD, but remember our topic here, OB issues after uterine perf. There's weird stuff out there. So let's put it in perspective. Are there weird, funky, super rare things that have happened after uterine perforation that are uh, obstetrical complications? Absolutely. But let's put it in perspective. This is super rare. This was super bad timing, right? Short IPI, pregnancy like super soon after the DNC. If you do the math, it's somewhere like three to four weeks after the DNC, which, you know, you're like, well, that's that's some month. Isn't that enough time to heal? Um, but remember, that DNC was in, in a recent postpartum state. So there's a lot of factors there. Uh, and then this weird ectopic thing. So it has nothing to do with the IUD, but I'm making the point here that there's weird stuff in the literature. So when somebody asks you, is there weird obstetrical complications after uterine perf? Absolutely. But you have to put it in perspective and know the entire story. Yeah, there's kind of strange things out there and you've got to read the entire publication. I, I want to read something to you that, uh, again, the, the headline is super catchy. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to give me a lot of info. And then we, we, we're going to go through it here and dissect it. This was published in July of 2022, not long ago, in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. Okay, The title is Obstetrical Outcome After Perforation of the Uterine Cavity. Guys, how much more clear can that be? I mean, this is exactly what we're talking about. Or is it? So let me explain. The authors of this publication come out of Beersheba in Israel, out of the Ben-Gurion University of the Najib. I've uh, been there many times. They're great folks. Uh, it's uh, Sororica University uh, Medical Center. Uh, and this is where this comes from. And let me tell you what they did. This was a retrospective case control study that included all patients who were diagnosed with a uterine perf and were treated at this tertiary referral center between 1996 to 2018. Now, that's a long time, right? So we're basically 20 years span. And then they looked for deliveries that happened after those perforations uh, were documented. Okay, so it's a long time. The good news is during that study period, there was just 51 women who were diagnosed with uterine perf during some gynecological procedure, including IUD insertion. There it is. All right. So, so like, all oh, right, and here we're, you know, we're, we're going to get some info coming. Now, the reassuring thing is, remember, we're talking about from 1996 to 2018. So, what, you're 22 years uh, of data and just 51 patients. That's pretty reassuring. So, again, low numbers of perf, right? Now, remember, that's those that they know of because sometimes you perf, you may not know. So these are known perforations, then following up the, following up the data. And this happened from all kinds of gynecological procedures, including IUD insertions. Now, what they said was 39 of those 51, okay, that's 76%, experienced the perf during IUD insertion. So 39 over 51 uh, out of 51. So that's 76%. The rest had it from something else, right? Some other surgical procedure, DNC, hysteroscopy, whatever. So 76% happened with the IUD. Now, 50 patients had 71 deliveries subsequent to the uterine perf. You're like, huh? How's that math? Remember, we're talking about 51 patients. So basically, nearly all of them, except for one, had a delivery after that perforation. The reason it was 71 is because they included deliveries up to two deliveries after the perforation happened, right? So we have an N of 51. 39 of those 51 had a perf during an IUD. Uh, and nearly all of them, except for one, went on to have 
uh, subsequent deliveries, okay? Now, here's what it says. One patient had an intrauterine fetal death. You're like, what? Wait a minute. That was due to fetal malformations. Oh, okay. So, it had nothing to do with the perf. Now, listen to this. One patient had uterine rupture. No other major obstetrical complications were noted. So, you're like, wait, 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 wait. wait. Go, go back to the uterine rupture part? Yeah. One patient had uterine rupture. So, the question is, well, what, what happened to that one patient? That one of 51, was that with the IUD or that was something else? That's important to know. All right, everyone, here's the good news. In this little N of 51, where one patient had a rupture, had nothing to do with the IUD. Do y'all hear this? Had nothing to do with the IUD. That's one of the things of grouping all uterine perfs together. Now, thankfully, they did peel this out because even though the majority were IUD related, remember, no other major obstetrical issue happened. Do y'all get that? That's good news. So what happened with this perf? Well, it's in this, it's in the, the article as they describe it, quote, one patient had uterine rupture at 24 weeks gestation. This followed a fundal posterior wall perf that had happened in the previous pregnancy. That perforation occurred during postpartum curatage due to an adherent placenta. The subsequent uterine rupture manifested with acute and significant abdominal pain at 24 weeks, end quote. So you get it. This was, again, this, this was a DNC perf. Guys, much more damage than just with an IUD or with a sound. Sound is not benign because that stuff has been implicated in something I'm going to get into in a minute. But this is reassuring. So out of Israel in 2022, like, hey, we've, we've got data here on OB issues after perfs. And the only issue that happened where there was a rupture was because of a curatage issue on a postpartum uterus. So already the uterus is already at risk because it's postpartum, uh, and, and then they perforated it. Guys, that's why if you're ever going to do a big banjo taking things out or use a big suction catheter uh, at an immediate postpartum DNC, it's, it, there's no formal guideline for it, but conservative best practice states try to do that under a, a transabdominal ultrasound. Get a nurse to put it on the abdomen, get a resident, get a partner, somebody. And I have to say, no, no, that's not ACOG guidance. There's no guideline for that. Um, the important thing is the patient gets treated, but it just makes sense and it's good conservative care. Now, if there's nobody around to do a transabdominal ultrasound, the important thing is that the patient gets treated. But it's blind, especially in the postpartum cases. You don't know where you're at. It just makes sense, okay? So, yes, it's not a formal guideline. That's just considered very conservative best practice and makes sense for me. And that's how we do it. Um, but, but again, not, not putting that on anybody. That's not a formal recommendation. It's just considered best practice to try to prevent things from being retained and trying to prevent perforation. So if there's an ability, if there's a way to do it under transabdominal ultrasound, especially for these postpartum cases, definitely should be uh, considered and implemented as best conservative care. Now, this is a very opinionated, divisive, kind of polarizing thing because some are very ultrasound friendly for DNCs and some are like, I don't need that. Um, I'm on the camp of I'm super medically conservative. I, I, I just if I've got uh, uh, an option to do it, I'm always going to do it. All of our first trimester DNCs are done under ultrasound. I know that freaks people out, but we've got ultrasound readily available. We have residents. It's an academic program uh, and I'm going to use it. Uh, and, and we code for that. I mean, we dictate that. And it's not about, you know, 
using resources that we shouldn't. It's about just to us, it's conservative care. We don't worry about perf. We know that we need to leave anything in. And for us, we just feel we're taking good care of the patient. But you don't have to do that. Okay, That's not a formal recommendation. Actually, uh, this was uh, published in 2022 in November um, in uh, Minerva Obstetrics and Gynecology. That's, a, that's its own journal. Uh, quote, does ultrasound guidance during dilation and curatage for first trimester missed abortion reduce complication rate? End quote. That's the, that's the name of the article. And they found, well, it didn't really do anything because rates of complication were overall pretty low anyway. So they said, nah, you don't really have to do that. It's not a big deal. Others would disagree, okay? But I'm just making the point here that it is a little polarizing, a little you know, um, uh, divisive. Some really uh, get, uh, uh, kind of take it personal that you're saying I need, I can't do it the way that we've always do it. I'm a, I'm a gynecological surgeon. I don't need an ultrasound. Um, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if, if you could do it under ultrasound, why wouldn't you, right? Just keep the patient safe. Now, first trimester is definitely different than a postpartum, which is definitely higher risk. So I think we've let, made that discussion, uh, uh, made our point. We'll let that be. But I am curious, do you do your DNCs under ultrasound guidance or not? It's totally okay if you don't. Um, we have chosen to do that. That's our prerogative just to, to be very uh, conscious and, and very safe. But again, everybody has their opinion on that. Now let's get back on track. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. OMG. I cannot leave this ultrasound thing like that. Okay. I just can't. Let me just give you the rebuttal to this uh, and then I'll get off. I'll get off this topic. But look how interesting this is. Okay. Because in 2017, in February, in Minerva Gynecology, that's the journal, the title is, quote, lower complication rates with office based DNC under ultrasound guidance for missed abortion, end quote. And in this retrospective study of an N of 255, quote, we observed very low complication rates in office-based DNC under ultrasound guidance, lower than those reported in the literature with unguided DNC, end quote. Um, yeah, so completely the opposite of what I just said. Those are two different publications, guys. See, one saying, we don't need no Sano, and the other, ooh, Sano's pretty good. We'll leave it at that. All right, fine. Back to the issue of uterine perf, specifically as it relates to IUD and OB issues. All right. Now, to get back on this, let me read you a, a report in the journal Sexual and Reproductive Healthcare from 2019. Okay. The title is Uterine Rupture in Pregnancy After an Intervention Complicated by Uterine Perforation. 
case report, and systematic review of the literature. So right up our alley, right? Again, if you read that headline, you're like, oh my goodness, uterine rupture in a pregnancy after an intervention complicated by uterine perf. I mean, what happened? Was that an IUD? No. So already we're not, we're not talking about an IUD, but if we're going to be honest about this, can bad things happen after a uterine perf obstetrically later on? Yes. But it depends, again, how the perf happened. Let me explain, okay? So in this case report, this patient presented um, uh, around 34 weeks, okay? And the patient had twins. So you're like, okay, this is already getting complicated. And she presented with contractions and this weird progressive pain in the left upper quadrant, okay? So she was a multip, had no previous C-section, Okay, a lot of miscarriages, but no previous C-section. So remember, so she's 28, 34 weeks, contractions, weird pain in the left upper quadrant, pregnant with twins, okay? Now, before this pregnancy, which happened after artificial uh, reproductive technology, okay, this was not a spontaneous pregnancy, this, this was an infertility case. But prior to this, she had undergone laparoscopy for this vague pelvic pain, it wouldn't go away. So they did a laparoscopy, and during the uterine manipulator placement, um, they perfed her. Okay, now they didn't know they perfed her, they found the perf at time of laparoscopy. So they put the uterine manipulator in, they pop in the scope in the abdomen, and like, oh, It went through the fundus. Like, well, that's not good. So then they pulled it out, okay? Uh, It was a a metal sound, and like a holka. And so they pulled it through the the fundus, and then they they cauterized, they fulgurated the the perforation site because it was bleeding. Big flag, don't do that, okay? So anyway, everything was fine. The rest of the survey was like, well, there's nothing here. So they called it a day. Then she went on. She had her... uh, artificial reproductive technology, got pregnant with twins. Now, fast forward to this current admission. Remember, she's 34 weeks, abdominal pain, left upper quadrant. Like, what's going on? They did an abdominal ultrasound to look um, uh, at the uterine wall. And lo and behold, there in the right upper quadrant where she was having pain, the ultrasound found uh, a little evaginating hourglassing part of the membrane out of the fundus. So if you're thinking, wait, what? Yeah, where that area of the perf was, the amniotic sac was basically evaginating, being forced out through that defect. So, yeah, they found it. They went back into the stat section and things worked out fine. But it makes the case that, yeah, weird stuff happens with a previous uterine perf. Now, in this case, it's thought that it wasn't the perf itself. But it's that coagulation that further weakened the wall that then presented in an extremely overtaxed uterus because of the twins. And it was just the perfect storm where this led to a quote, quote, rupture, which is it a real rupture? I mean, I guess, right? It's a breach in the wall. Or is it just a a, a completely, a not completely healed uh, perforation because of the fulguration damage, right? Because of the coagulation. So, Yes, technically there's been a uterine rupture after a uterine perforation with a sound, but with a sound connected to a uterine manipulator like a holka. Um, So yeah, but notice the very unique issues here. So yes, it was a perf with a sound, but likely that wasn't enough to lead to this rupture issue. It was a combination of that with fulguration, which is why you should 
probably just leave it alone. Or if you really want to do something about it at time of laparoscopy and you find it, then just stitch it. Let me read you what the authors say here, what they say here, because it's very telling. Quote, the defect may therefore be more predisposed to forcing influences and rupture because of the poor vascularization of the perforation together with the coagulation, which led to less favorable healing. Perhaps suturing the defect or no treatment when bleeding is not significant would decrease the possibility of uterine rupture in future pregnancy, end quote. So there it is. They acknowledge it. They're like, yeah, maybe then we shouldn't have fulgurated it. Okay. So the take home after all of this is, look, it's super rare. But if you do get a perf, uh, number one, always disclose that to the patient. I mean, tell them, hey, we went through the wall. The vast majority of the time, uh, you're going to be fine. Absolutely fine. Um, it, you, most people don't even know that it happened. That they're asymptomatic. And in terms of pregnancy issues, while stuff is out there, it's really very niche. It's very small, and yes, it's happened with a sound-like device, but not by itself. It Technically, it was combined with this additional tissue damage that prevented it from healing. That's the catch. So let's talk everybody down from the fear wall that this is going to cause a, some kind of weird uterine rupture in the future. This is one case that was very unique in an overtaxed uterus that had twins, and it had been fulgurated. So take that for what it's worth. All right, everyone, let's start wrapping this up. By the way, I, I know you're not keeping track, because who would? But we are. And right now we are at 10, 10 articles that we have presented here. So basically, you guys, in our whatever time we've spent here, we've gone through 10 pieces of literature. How about that? So where are we in this game? Well, there's been no data that shows that perforation, just by a sound by itself or with an IUD, leads to any adverse OB issues. There's data that sounding and then fulgurating it causes more damage and in a very overtaxed uterus potentially could lead to this weird condition, which is why you always ask patients their history when they come to you uh, for a pregnancy is, hey, what what has been done with you? Oh, I had a DNC in the past. Any issues with that? Did they say anything happened? Was there any complications like a bad infection? Did they say the word perforation? Did anything? Just be aware and put that in the chart. Uh, and, and talk to the patient about the, the possibility of weird stuff. But those are with mainly big perfs with other issues. With a simple sound or with an IUD, there is no data that there's risk of morbidly adherent placenta or of uterine rupture in an otherwise unscarred uterus. Okay, Now, there has definitely been literature published of subsequent uterine rupture with uterine perfs that has happened at times of hysteroscopy. Okay, but remember, that's a whole different issue. Most of the cases that have shown increased risk of uterine rupture or increased morbidly uh, adherent placenta, the placenta accreta, has been in cases where the perf has happened with DNC, again, a big variable because that's destructive of the basalis layer, or it's been at time of operative hysteroscopy with some kind of meteroplasty, right? There's a septum removal, and that's led to a uterine rupture. That's very well published. So any cases of uterine perforation with, with hysteroscopic surgery, that raises the risk of rupture. 
Okay, now ACOG doesn't have a, a set guidance on that. Remember, the indication right now for primary C-section is prior classical or previous transfundal surgery. The, the trick is with medroplasty, if somebody has a big resection or even deep uh, resection with the old resectoscopes that, you know, they're kind of digging in to get a, an intracavitary fibroid, they got to watch that because that may have weakened the wall. So you got to be careful with that one. I'm not talking about things like true clear or myosure that morselates into the cavity, doesn't really dig into the wall. But anything that uses point cautery that digs into the wall, that is a risk because that potentially could be transfundal. And you got to watch that one. So I'm all in favor in those cases of doing ultrasound um, as, as, you know, from 36 weeks and looking at that thickness, make sure there's no flags there. That's different than the lust issue that we talked about in the previous episode. Lower uterine segment thickness. That's measuring the lower uterine segment segment. Uh, in areas of previous C-section. That's different, okay? Because we don't know what's standard there. But transfundal surgery with a perf, like, oh, I did a hysteroscopy and they removed a septum and they told me that they had gone through the wall. Oh my gosh, you need a section. So to be clear, those who should not labor are those with more than two low transverse C-sections, a classical C-section, a transfundal myomectomy, anybody who has hysteroscopic surgery that potentially has violated the myometrium, um, that's that's just that's a very scary issue, and that should be considered an indication for section. Um, and the same thing here, perforation with hysteroscopy, that should probably have a a requirement for section. Okay, and, and that's things that we kind of overlook. So we're not talking about perforation by itself, just a perf with a sound or a perf with an IUD. It's not what we're talking about here. But perforation with hysteroscopic surgery, especially metroplasty or anything that involves weakening of the fundal wall, that should have a section. Now, as our last point, we have to uh, state something that may not be initially very obvious, and that's, well, why was there a perf? Now, I don't mean just technique issue, because you can have perfect technique, but if the uterus is ill... Now, here's what I mean by that. If there's adenomyosis, the uterus is very soft, there's that, that boggy uterine fundus, that's a risk factor for PERF, okay? So remember, and we've talked about this, guys, in the morbidly adherent placenta episode in the unscarred uterus, okay? Go back to that episode because remember we said that the uterus itself can predispose to stuff. So if the uterus is like adenomyotic, that can lead to a PERF. So it's not the PERF itself that can lead to pregnancy uh, adverse issues. It's the uterine condition, right? We covered this. Yes, a adenomyotic uterus can lead to weird placental issues um, and things like uterine perf at gynecological procedures because the uterus is soft. So think about it. A patient comes in, oh, I'm having terrible periods and they're super painful. And what do we say? Oh, you want contraception? She's like, yes. Great. Morena, I can fix both of those. Take away pain and take away bleeding. So that's great. But why is that patient having bleeding and pain? Is it possibly some adeno? Now, adeno typically isn't all that common like in the 20s. Typically, it happens later on, late 20s to 30s and above. But it's possible. And these are things that we have to consider, right? Now, I'm not saying that every patient with bleeding and pain that's going to get an IUD needs to be done under a sono-guided for IUD placement. 
It'd be nice, but you don't have to do that. Just my point of telling you that is let these things trigger these flags. Guys, I know I'm super type A. I'm a little OCD, but those are things that how my brain works. Wait a minute. You're having bleeding and pain. Ooh, um, endo, adeno. Um, okay, I'm, I'm, those things could be possible. I'm still going to give you the IUD if you want it, but now I've got to set myself up to think about that in my head. Okay, so just things to consider because sometimes uterine conditions can lead to perforation and then the perf gets the blame. No, no, no. The uterine condition could have set up the right condition for the perf to begin with. All right, podcast family, as we wrap this up, here's where we're at. Yes, it's important for patients to know if you did a procedure, guys, and you think you perfed, you have to disclose, right? All this thing of keeping it secret and not saying anything, that's not done. You've got to disclose that to the patient and say, look, there's been weird stuff in literature from future obstetrical complications. They're really, really rare and like negligible. So this shouldn't affect anything regarding fertility. It should not affect things like where the placenta attaches and it should not affect uh, any risk of labor issues. However, if you have a perf that was tied to a hysteroscopic procedure, especially a hysteroscopic procedure that they did stuff like lysis of adhesions, myomectomy, septum removal, that needs a section. That is not an unscarred uterus. That uterus is scarred. I mean, it's scarred and it's scared both at the same time, two scars. So both of those should have a section. So I got through this episode. You guys don't know how many times I had to stop a recording because my alveoli were all over my laptop. <clears throat> my goodness, I hope these roids kick in tomorrow. I'm telling you, Medrod Dose Pack, if you've never taken it, guys, makes you feel kind of wiggy. Let me just say, um, they wiggy out. I'm so tired of this guy. It's been, I'm coming up on two weeks of sick and I'm done. I'm, I'm sick of being sick. It's got to wear out. But I'm thankful for residents who look after me, take care of me. I think that's fantastic. They also made me an AI song uh, with artificial intelligence. Did you all hear that? Go to the Instagram. I did a little reel uh, because yes, apparently now I have a theme song. Thank you, Dr. Spencer NC for my theme song. So, all right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. What's the take home message? Perfect IUD, obstetrical complications, rare to negligible. Everything is possible but likely not probable, right? So remember those terms. We tell the residents all the time, everything is possible, but is it really probable that something will happen just because of a perf with the sound or the IUD perf the, the uterine wall? Uh, is that going to be set the patient up to adverse OB issues later on? Not likely at all. And no, they do not need a C-section unless it was some other energy device that was used or, or wall dissection. Short answer is, they'll be fine. All right, podcast family, I hope you found that helpful. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.